Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And joining me on today's episode was a very unique individual. His name is Henry Villa, and he's the managing director of a company called Stone Horizon. Now, not only did we talk about his uh, personal journey from Venezuela to Australia, how he managed to break free from the shackles of wage slavery in his corporate job, but also his five-year property entrepreneurship journey, which has led him to start development companies and a whole range of different things. He's got an extremely inspiring story that's happened over a very short period of time. And we, we talk about how he managed to do that, the levels of self-belief. He, we talked about the power of education and the three key areas of growth that he focuses on, which is personal, business, and property. We also spoke about his appearance at um, Tony Robbins Business Mastery event and his interaction with Sarah Blakely, which is really interesting too. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned. So there's so much really to unpack here. It wasn't just a story about Henry though. It was also a story. It was also an insight into rooming houses and how they can fit into a dynamic portfolio. So we spoke about why rooming houses are good. Also, what are the risks in rooming houses and why would you choose rooming houses over a commercial asset and a whole variety of different things. Now, this episode is best going to be best suited to, really, it's very interesting. This is going to be best suited to anyone who, has, who needs just to spark that entrepreneurial spirit, who is ready for change and they just need to get some fuel in that fire to get them to break free and to become the master of their own destiny. And it's also going to be super exciting for advanced stage investors because rooming houses are not something you can inject in your portfolio early on. There's something that has to come in a later stage. That's where we, it's a legacy stage asset. If you're familiar with our strategies, you'll understand that it's the third stage in your investing portfolio. It's a wonderful strategy that is extremely high cash flow whilst also having the benefits of residential and manufacturing growth. However, it's not for the faint of heart and there are a lot of risks associated with it. So I think this, this is going to be super insightful for, as I say, anyone who's starting their entrepreneurial journey or someone who's already an advanced stage investor or someone on their journey who wants to see a little bit into the future about where they can go on their property journey, this is going to be super valuable. I got a lot out of this. I was actually pumped. If you're watching the video for this episode, you'll see me pumping my fists in the air and everything. I had such a good time talking to Henry, not just because I like his strategies and because I think that I can help people, but because there is a huge alignment in the way that his vision of the future is for other people. And we're both really committed to helping people achieve more freedom, choice, and abundance in their life. So it's great to really spend some time with someone who's so aligned with that vision as well. And I just know that you're going to get a lot out of it. If you've, if you've listened to this, ep- this uh, podcast before, you'll understand the kind of values that we have and, and where we want people to go. And this is so aligned with that. Now, if you like this episode, there's an added bonus. Not just do you get to enjoy this fantastic episode, but Henry has also offered for our private membership clients. So if, you're, if you want to join, work out how to join that, just head to theinvestorlab.com.au forward slash join the community. We're going to be hosting a training. Henry is going to crack open the can and really tell you everything you need to know about rooming houses, how it works, the mechanics, the finances, the, like where it fits, how it fits, what are the prob- like the risks, the benefits, all of that stuff. And we're going to go into a deep dive training. So you can really understand not just the what, 
but also the how. And that is only going to be ex- exclusively available inside our private community. So if you're interested in participating in that, that is going to be happening over the coming months. We've got so much stuff planned in there that, that I highly suggest and highly encourage you if you really do want to start advancing your property journey to join that community now. Just head to theinvestorlab.com.au forward slash join the community. And if in fact, if you just go to theinvestorlab.com.au, you'll find a multitude of other ways that we can help you too. We've obviously got the podcast. We've got my book. If you're interested in that, head to renegadespropertybook.com. And also, we've got our buyer's agency service. So there are so many different ways that we're trying to meet you where you are to get you to where you want to go. So jump on that website. That's theinvestorlab.com.au to find out the many, many, many ways that we can help you. And of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, if you've enjoyed other podcasts, and if also you enjoy other people, then I encourage you to join those dots and share this podcast with those other people so that they can get some benefit out of it as well. And of course, like, share, comment, rate, review, do all of the good stuff because the interaction that you give back to us really gives us fuel for what we need to be able to give you what you need. And if you have any suggestions or any questions, feel free to send them in. You can reach out to us via the website and let us know what you want more of so that we can help you get to where you want to go. I know you're going to love this episode. Enjoy. I'll see you on the inside. Hello and welcome. Joining me on today's episode of the Investor Lab is a very special guest. You might have noticed, if you've been listening to the podcast recently, you'll notice a couple of things have changed. Firstly, we're doing more episodes. And the reason we're doing more episodes is because we want to bring more value. And part of that bringing value is us reaching out to other experienced professionals in the field, people who have got paradigm shifting ideas, unique philosophies, um, helpful strategies that are able to you know, bring more value to your property journey and you know, help us serve our mission of empowering Australia's property investors. And so it is with my great pleasure that I would like to welcome today's guest, Henry Villa. Thank you, Lewis. Pleasure to be here. Mate, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on board. So let me just give you a, give a little bit of backstory. So we've actually known each other kind of like loosely for what, two years or something now. Yeah, like something we, like that. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, we, we, met, we met at a, uh, at a business club. Um, we've sort of been in and around, you know, the same industry. We've been connected a few different ways. And recently we, um, we reconnected and we, we got stuck on, on to talking about what you're focusing on right now in a big way, as far as I understand, is about rooming houses, right? Or do you call them rooming houses, boarding houses? What's the differentiation? Uh, listen, it's a bit of a semantic. So depending on which state you are in, um, it works a little bit different. I like calling them rooming houses because we try to build uh, a very specific product that I'm pretty sure we're going to talk a little bit about. Yeah, okay. Awesome, man. Sweet. Well, mate, um, so let's let's take a little step back because I am. we can talk about rooming houses and boarding houses. We'll talk about all that. We'll get into the mechanics of that kind of property strategy aspect in a bit. Mm. I'm very interested though and to take a little backtrack and to find out a little bit more about your story. I think firstly, I think it'll be beneficial to people to understand it. I'm pretty confident you've got a very interesting story and I actually don't know it. So I'm interested to find out myself. So you're currently now the managing director of a development company called Stone Horizon. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay. Awesome. So I'm guessing by your accent, you weren't born in Australia and that's cool. So tell me, how did you get from Venezuela, as I understand it. How did you get from Venezuela to here to, to building rooming houses? What, was, what does that story look like? 
Yeah, it's long. I'm not sure it's an interesting story, but uh, but I guess it's my story. It's the one, uh, the only one I can share. So, uh, born in uh, Venezuela, the edge of the Caribbean, in a beautiful place called Venezuela, uh, that is beautiful geographically, uh, but not necessarily politically or economically. Um, and, no, uh, so, so, sorry to interject, sorry to interject there, but no, yeah, it's the funny. The big thing about Venezuela is they printed all the money and they had hyperinflation, right? We did, yeah, yeah. Were you, were you there during that period of time? Um, I left at the beginning of that whole process, but it was it was very clear that um, that the economy was in a you know in bad shape, and that they, you know, the people in charge of managing the economy they weren't doing anything to kind of solve it. So um, many of us who had options to go uh, to other places took that opportunity. So that was why you left. You were like, okay, this country's going to this country's going to pits. It is, yes. I spent probably before before finally leaving, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in the United States. So I have family over there, uh, yep. particularly in uh, Florida, New York, uh, and places like that. Um, but around 2004, we, I decided I had enough of Venezuela and we were going to kind of move somewhere else. Um, the natural place for me was going go to be to, you know, go to the United States where, like I said, I had family and relationships and everything like that. But in 2004, the economy of the United States was in pretty bad shape still, uh, coming back from 9-11 and, uh, and, and, and from the crash that, uh, that followed. Um, so we uh, decided to take a bit of a detour and to come to this tiny little island with 25 million people called Australia to get a little bit of exposure to this part of the world and maybe get a little bit closer to Asia for what we thought was going to be a year, uh, max two, and then, uh, and then go back to the United States. And, uh, and here you have me, you know, 16 years later. Um, I do have an accent because I wasn't born here. But other than that, um, you know, my blood is as Australian as it gets, man. Awesome, man. Awesome. So that's, that's, that's awesome. What prompted you, like you said that you wanted to get a little taste and be closer to Asia. Like what mm. was that kind of, what was the thinking around that? Well, listen, at the time I was, uh, I spent 25 years in the corporate world uh, until I kind of transitioned into property, and we'll talk about that uh, in, in a second. But uh, um, in the career I had, global exposure was fairly important. Um, so, again, getting exposure to this part of the world uh, was going to give me a lot of, a lot of power, was going to allow me to compete in the American market, which is obviously fairly competitive in general, a fairly competitive economy. Um, so, yeah, the intention was to come here, try something different, live in a, you know, in a different culture, uh, a different place, and then go back to what, what seemed uh, very obvious. But again, once I got here, uh, I fell in love with the place. I managed to continue that corporate career that, I, that I've been doing for a while. And uh, yeah, just fell, fell in love with the place, fell in love with the people, and fell in love with the opportunities that we have in uh in this economy yeah yeah fair enough as someone who's traveled a lot myself like i've lived overseas for 10 years i actually didn't spend longer than six months in australia at, at any given point in time i spent i was mm. on the road constantly um but i certainly come to really 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 love the just the opportunity and the culture like i used to sort of try and run away from it and want to experience the world and now i'm like actually this place is great it's fantastic yeah. so um so you kind of mentioned there, obviously you're a developer now, but you haven't always been a developer. So you, what, what was this kind of, like, was what you were doing previously? How did that tie in with this? 
before you left Venezuela? Were you doing property stuff? Tell me a little bit about your property journey and how that tied in with what you were doing. Listen, I've always had an interest in, in property, but it's always been a little bit ancillary. So I, I, I was a corporate guy for 25 years. I worked for some of the you know, biggest companies in the world, your, you know, car manufacturers and banks and, and consulting firms and technology companies. Um, but you know, about, about five years ago, I had a kind of big kind of wake-up call. So I had twin, twin, twin uh, seven-year-old twin boys. Uh, so there were about one or two at the time and, and I realized that I was, I was, yeah, I was kind of missing a lot of time, uh, with them, uh, spending 220 nights away from home, uh, wow. all throughout Australia and, and overseas. So what was really glamorous and exciting when I was in my twenties, uh, I realized it just wasn't sustainable. So I needed to look for something that will give me the freedom from from what uh, I now call corporate slavery. So back then, I, I was, you know, uh, in hindsight, uh, I was a slave, but I didn't quite realize it. I was a highly paid slave. And, uh, and, you know, like I said, lots of travel, lots of nice things. Um, but, you know, I, I wasn't the owner of my own destiny, the owner of my own time. So I decided to change that. And then I very, very quickly realized that property was um, was a way to to kind of achieve that. So, like I said, I've always had an interest in property. Uh, I'm an engineer by training, uh, so I decided to put those skills um, to kind of good use. Uh, I was lucky enough to have good mentors and good teachers around me that gone through through that journey before. And uh, yeah, I started out of he- heading into property uh, with a view that you know make that transition as quickly as okay. I like, Okay, so you, you, you're in corporate life for a long time. Uh, you're in engineering. You work for some big companies. You spend all your time on the road, a young family here in Australia, and then you were like, I've something's got to change. I can't spend all my time away. I need to be here for my family and all of that kind of stuff. That was only five years ago? Yeah, about five years ago I started that process, yes. Wow, okay. So, and you'd been a property investor prior, right? Yeah, that's right. I've been investing in property. I've been, you know, owning and and, uh, and investing in property geez, most of my life, really. Um, but what I call the the um, the you know the wrong way or the traditional way. Uh, you know, I had my first property in Australia. Geez, it was going to be now twelve years ago, thirteen years ago. I've been doing what most investors do. You know, buy a property, rent it for less than I needed to pay the bank pay my tenants to live in my house and, you know, not making any money on the process. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't know any different, right? Classic negative gearing trap, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, (laughs) and again, back then, that's what everyone was doing. So I kind of felt like, yeah, um, that's that's the way you do it in this country. And again, as part of adopting, I guess, my new Australian life, I, you know, it fell down to do what everyone else was doing. You adopted the you adopted the new Australian life and the new Australian liabilities as well. Like it's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I adopted <laughs> the good and the bad. Uh, <laughs> lucky, lucky enough, I woke up to that one uh, not not long after that. So. Yeah, good, good. So, um, did you that that transition that you decide you decided you were going to like right? I'm ditching corporate life and I'm going to go start. I'm going to be the master of my own destiny. I understand your motivation, family, but like, what did that kind of what did that transition look and feel like? Was that do you consider yourself to be an entrepreneur or have you just like how do you kind of see that that transition from who you were to who you are 
now? Yes, certainly. You know, my, my corporate career was built on business, building and transforming businesses, yeah, other people's businesses. So um, part of what I decided to do is, well, if I can do it for other people, um, there's no reason why, you know, I shouldn't do it for, for myself. Property was going to be the vehicle. And then it was a matter of establishing the right structure and the right uh, strategies around me to, uh, to be able to do that. So as a consequence, Consequence of that, um, I now, you know, I, I, you know, I call myself a property entrepreneur. I have a number of businesses in property. Um, obviously, you know, Stone Horizon being the the the, the, the main one, uh, and and rooming houses being my my favorite cash flow strategy. And we're going to talk a little bit. More we will about talk that about one. that for sure. Yeah, uh, but there, you know, that's not necessarily where it started. I started doing other stuff. I started doing, uh, you know, developments, and I. I am. Uh, I own a building company, uh, and I own some other property businesses. Are, are you know are, are around it? All essentially, essentially, around essentially, though, you started from scratch. You like left corporate life five years ago, and then mm. now you own multiple businesses in the property space. You own a building company. You do rooming houses. You've done development. Fascinated, like that. By by any measure, by any measure, that is um, an exceptional achievement. And I and I, what, oh, you, you mentioned you mentioned something there that you consider yourself a property entrepreneur. One of the, one of my passions is awakening the entrepreneurial spirit inside real estate investors. You know, look, there's a difference between the classic property investor who's just like, I'm happy to work until I'm 50 or 60, and I'll just segment some of my wage into property, and I'll just park it over there, and I'll deal with it later classic sort of property investor. And then there's yeah. the people who really want to go out and capture their own destiny and they mm. want to use real estate as a vehicle. And you, you're a classic embodiment of that. And so, mate, I, I want to thank you for, for, for sharing that and for being part of this because it's really going to help other people to see that they can do it too. What, what, was, the, what was the hardest part about um, transitioning from, I guess, the stability of having a job and starting your own business in this space? Well, listen. The, the the biggest the biggest challenge and the biggest barrier on on all of these process, um, not not only for me but also for some of the people that I've seen go through the same journey uh, after me, it's uh, it's kind of twofold. The first one is there's a big sort of self belief factor that is needed to be able to kind of overcome all the challenges that are going to go, uh, um, you know, with the journey, right? So you're starting with nothing. I didn't know much about property. I certainly didn't know much about building. Uh, and some of these strategies that today are fairly common for us and that are fairly industrialized and that we uh, kind of deliver for some of our clients, back then, there wasn't a stone horizon that could do some of these uh, developments and some of these kind of strategies for me, which is why we ended up building all of that. So in a way, we were kind of creating the path. Uh, and that required a, a little bit of, tr of trust that that you know that this was the right thing to do. Um, the other big thing is it changed a lot the way I perceive risk. Yeah, one of the reasons why I stay in corporate life for so long is because I used to believe that 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 was the lower risk path. Yeah, that going on my own meant that where I didn't have a you know a guaranteed salary, that I didn't have the surety of having a system around me and a team around me. Um, particularly at the beginning when I was kind of judged myself. Um, and then very quickly I realized that, that I had it all wrong, that effectively it was exactly the opposite, that by being, you know, my own, um, you know, my own boss and the, the, the lead of my own journey, I had a lot more control 
than I did in the corporate world. It's not necessarily that it's that's without risk. There's obviously risk in everything. You know, every investment uh, um, journey has has risks attached to it. Uh, but uh, what I used to think was fairly safe uh, it turned out to not be safe at all. And I think you know, um, you know, we've seen plenty of recent cases where uh, a lot of the you know, a lot of the companies that I used to work for um, kind of laid out significant amounts of people, you know, overnight. So, um, yep. you know, people thought they were safe, but in, in reality, they weren't. They just didn't have the visibility of what was about to happen. Yeah, it's the delegation of responsibility. And that's, that's a massive thing. A lot of people go, oh, it's safe and secure only because I'm refusing to take responsibility for myself. It's like, well, I don't need to worry about that because I've got, I'm, I'm suckling on the bosom of somebody else's decision-making mm. process, which is totally fine. Which is totally fine. But I remember like my, uh, my dad and my granddad, they both worked for um, the State Electrical Commission, SEC <laughs> in Victoria. And both of them, when they started their jobs, had jobs for life. You know, that was the thing. You st- yeah. Like it was a job for life. Like you go there and you work for life. Like th- that was it. So that was like, that was like s- security. You know, there was no, it was unheard of. What do you mean? You, you wouldn't get retrenched. What are you talking about? And, but everything's completely changed. And particularly in the way that the economy moves and everything moves, I think it's quite frankly, I think it's scary. There's a lot of fear that comes with taking responsibility for yourself. And that's a level of fear that most people associate with, with negativity. They're like, oh, it's scary and it's risky. But it's like, well, I would rather control my risk and face up to that fear. That I, I would rather stare that fair and square in the face and say, I can see you, I know you, and I will own you rather than just pretending like there is no risk and hoping somebody else is going to take care of me. Absolutely. And that, that was the key. So, um, you know, there was a point in my journey where I, um, you know, I was ready to kind of complete the transition. And then, you know, I realized that I had my next year of salary already in the bank. And I'm like, well, worst case scenario, I, you know, if this fails, I have a year to find another job. So that's a pretty comfortable place to be in terms of, you know, if, you know, knowing that I had the abilities and the skills and some experience, uh, I'm like, you know, and I already know what exactly what was going to happen in the following year. I was going to make, you know, the same amount of money I was making before with, you know, absolutely no risk. So my risk was on year two or year three. Um, that, that's something that very, very few people um, get to experience. Now, today, very different story. Um, you know, today I know what's going to happen in the next five years. So my biggest risk is 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 to not grow, uh, not not to kind of shrink. And you know, like I said, I know exactly what's going to happen in the next year or two. Um, kind of almost down lot, to the dollar. So well, a lot of business owners don't have that foresight. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and I, I just want to loop back a little bit because starting this journey, you mentioned self belief. Yeah. You also mentioned that you didn't really know much about building. You didn't really know that much about property. Mm-hmm. That must have taken. I mean, sure, you had the cushion, the financial cushion. All right, I've got a year. I've got a year to. I've got a year to give it a crack. But that takes a hell of a lot of self belief, and and to be able to have that foresight into your business trajectory over the next five years is also for a lot of people is is not it's not common. A lot of people don't operate their businesses that way. Mm-hmm. Now, a slight segue to this is a little while ago. I was listening to a podcast, a Tony Robbins podcast, and it was at the Business Mastery event. 
Mm. I, I want to just kind of touch on that. I heard there was a que- <laughs> there was a question that um that 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 you asked, and it got asked of Sarah Blakely. I can't remember the question. You might be able to remember the question, but I again, I was like, "That's Henry. I know Henry. Fantastic." And I'm wondering how much has how much has that how much is Tony Robbins, Business Mastery, like how much is having those kind of mentors and programs and guides and professionals and how much has that helped or dictated or, or contributed to your success so far? Oh, listen, yeah, immensely. It's, uh, one of the things that has led me to be able to achieve the, you know, the things that I've achieved in, in this relatively sort of modest uh, period of time has been to surround myself with a, people who've done it before uh, with the right team, with the right expertise, uh, the people who have, you know, the knowledge and the experience that I didn't have when I started. So, um, you know, a very, very good example in, in the case of, of that conference. I go to probably one big international conference every year and probably to three or four uh, smaller local ones because it doesn't matter how much I've done or, or what I've achieved. Um, the biggest portion still ahead of me, right? I still need to develop. I still need to learn. Uh, I still need to kind of mature as a, as a leader and as an entrepreneur. Uh, and I, you know, I need to bring kind of new ideas, new new uh, new approaches to my business. So, um, so in January, yeah, I had the opportunity to kind of have a chat to to Sarah Blakely. I've heard her before in a different conference, um, and, and this time around, the way. The way she told her story was about she's the owner of, of Spanx, one of the kind of big kind of entrepreneur success stories of probably the last, um, um, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, and she did it everything without taking a single investment dollar, yeah? A single dollar from anyone else she did or herself. Um, and I saw myself in a very similar journey. I, I am um, in, a, in a similar journey in the sense that I'm not in a kind of technology startup or the typical uh, kind of startup, um, you know, scene that, that many entrepreneurs are. Uh, I'm driving a business, um, you know, on, on my own and I, I have intention of continuing to growing it. Uh, and she grew it really, really big um, with no money. So my question to her was, well, how do you grow a company to that size? Uh, with, without taking any money from anyone. Um, and I think the question caught her by surprise a little bit. So she actually kind of, you know, asked the question and then kind of stayed, tried to mix with the crowd. And I don't, I don't necessarily like being the center of attention and I certainly wouldn't pretend to be, you know, anywhere near where those guys are. Uh, but she kind of looked me up. She said, oh, okay, where's Henry? I, just, I want to see who's kind of asking the question. Um, and then she, she proceeded to tell me uh, a very, very simple but super powerful truth, which is, you know, there's no black magic in business. There's no black magic in, uh, in any of the stuff that we do as, as property entrepreneurs. Um, and she didn't quite say it, but she helped me, um, you know, understand that, that in property is, is the same thing. So property for the most of it is, is relatively simple business. You just need to know kind of what you're doing, have the right people around you, the right team around you, get the right help, uh, because it is a, it is a team sport. Um, and, you know, sometimes you need to kind of stop looking, you know, where the kind of secret that's going to make me rich overnight is and just realize that it's a progressive process. And that's kind of part of what I've done with it. Totally. One of the biggest lessons that I've learned in, in my life 
and and I'll be honest and say that I've only really been learning it fairly recently, <laughs> is that um, fast is bad. Like fast is fast is fast is not the goal. Like fast generally means there's something wrong. Like and I was listening to um, Simon Sinek, an interview with Simon Sinek, oh, a couple of weeks ago. And he said something to that effect. He was like, I don't understand this uh, obsession with everyone trying to like hyper growth companies and get rich really fast. He said, like, think about it this way. If you, if you suddenly said to someone, hey, man, I've put on 20 kilograms of muscle in the last week, look at me. You'd be like, is that healthy? That doesn't yeah. sound right. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like it should be the goal, right? And, mm. and in fact, the greatest gains are going to be actually made incrementally, consistently over time. Like consistency, consistency trumps speed mm. every single time. Absolutely. And so, so I'll, I'll, uh, we're going to get into property in a second. I just want to ask you from a personal level, given where you're at right now and given that you constantly have a desire to, my partner Gabby and I, we always, ABL is our thing, always be learning, right? Mm-hmm. And do you, where, look, what do you try and learn the most right now? As you say, you're always learning. Are you, are you trying to find new property strategies or are you like, cool, I've got the property bit fine. I just need to focus on business or how do you segment that or is it, or is there any kind of, Tell me about that. Uh, listen, there's three big sort of areas that drive my my learning journey, right? So I, I like you, um, you know, believe that learning has been probably the main factor that has taken me from, you know, from where I was to where I am now. And it's going to be the key factor to take me from where I am to where I'm going to be in the next 10 or 20 years, yeah? So, um, and, and I've been trying to learn and now sort of, have a bit of a bit of a an approach. So I have sort of three prong approach to kind of learning. There's some learning that is purely personal. It's about understanding myself better, understanding my strengths, understanding my leadership styles, the way I relate to people. Yeah, uh, the way you know my emotions work and how to better control them and how to kind of drive faster and challenge myself. Right. So that's one factor. Um, you know, some of the Tony Robbins stuff that you've seen. Uh, me do kind of falls falls in there. Some of the stuff that I've done locally with other people, and sometimes it's not about property. Sometimes it's not even about business. Sometimes it's about you know taking a week off and going to far north Queensland and living off the grid with no contact to anyone for for a while, and you know seeing seeing you know meditating and that sort of thing. So so that's one factor. The second factor is about business because very early I realized that even though I am mainly a property investor uh, and a property entrepreneur, the rules of business apply to anything and anywhere. So I try to learn from business outside of property. So I go and talk to people who hire, you know, who work in manufacturing. I try to work, talk to people who work in digital marketing. I try to uh, go and talk to people who have, you know, medical practices and hospitals and, and, you know, car dealers and all sorts of things, because there's always something that I can take out of what they do and how they do it that they take for granted because in that industry is kind of a baseline. But if we take that and apply it to what we do in property, um, we can create a, a, you know, a massive difference to, to the people we work with. And then uh, the, the third factor, which is kind of more traditional, it, it's all about property. But it's not just about the basics of property. It's about how we challenge the status quo, how we challenge the assumptions of property investment to achieve the results that really, really matter. Yeah. So, and, and again, 
you know, probably pretty good segue. That's actually what took me to kind of rooming houses is, well, how do we make sure that property can be a sustainable um, source of, of income, particularly for people who don't want to do what I do, people who don't mm. want to transition into property, right? So we do a lot of work with, you know, doctors and lawyers and engineers who they love what they do. They just wish they could, you know, maybe have a little bit of extra cash or maybe do it a little bit less often or maybe not necessarily have the pressure of having to do it for money, you know, being able to go and volunteer and work on occupations and, and stuff that really interests them and really fulfills them, but that maybe they cannot do because they, you know, they need money to live and they need to pay the mortgage. So, Henry, I had no idea when we started this interview that you were going to get me so pumped up. Like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm loving this because what you've spoken about there, those three key areas and those thought processes around that are so deeply aligned with everything that we stand for, personal growth, business growth, and property and innovation, innovation in thought, innovation in thinking, and how can we change the paradigms and how can we move things forward? How can we make a difference and make an impact? So it is a good segue for us to start really digging into some of the property stuff because, yes, I agree, rooming houses are a great strategy for a certain person at a certain point in a portfolio and it's not for everyone it's not a starter strategy Absolutely. so how did how did you like how did you go from like all right i'm going to start a property um entrepreneurship journey i'm going to start in my business you didn't start with with rooming houses right no, i didn't so i didn't and probably probably no one should to be honest um because it is an advanced strategy and it's a i don't well, i don't want to call it a risky strategy but it's like driving a sports car versus taking the bus, yeah? The taking the bus is really low risk. It's very, very, other than taking the wrong bus, it's very, very little that can go wrong. Um, now, driving a, you know, a high-performance car, it's not problematic if you know what you're doing, right? It's, uh, you know, um, and rooming houses are a bit like that. So uh, rooming houses have a lot more complexity to them. Um, you, you know, the price and the cost of getting it wrong it's uh, it's much bigger than in other forms of property. Um, it's probably one of the few properties where you can go to jail uh, if you do something wrong. Uh, not that I'm saying I want to kind of scare Crikey. people. So. <laughs> but there's a lot more regulation than there is uh, in other forms of property where you just kind of you know, buy a house, rent it to someone, have a good contract, and then forget about it. Uh, in real estate, in, you know, in, in, in rooming houses, the regulations are key. And I've seen plenty of people do it the wrong way and, you know, say, oh, I'm going to buy this, you know, buy this house and then I'm going to rent it by the room. So I have five rents instead of one. Or if you, they don't do it properly, like I said, they get into big trouble. Uh, and, I've, you know, a few years ago, there were uh, some unfortunate news uh, of, you know, some of these things catching fire and people losing their lives. And, and wow. uh, I don't know if people ended up going to jail, but they certainly should have gone to jail because they're at least partly responsible for, for, uh, for what happened there. Uh, so it's very, very important to strategy to know what you're doing, to, um, you know, again, be surrounded by the right people, follow the regulation. So with all of that complexity, it's probably not something that you will do first off. No, um, totally. I, I think just to, just to touch on that, anyone who's familiar with us and our kind of strategies, we've kind of, we've got a couple of key paradigms that we uh, encourage people to understand. Firstly, it's the three pillars, which are the Holy Trinity strategy. So that's, mm -hmm. Cash flow positive properties, growth, so either manufactured or high growth areas, and value add potential, right? So you want to get all three yeah. of those factors to so get growth, cash flow, and the ability to manif to make your own make your own destiny with it. Now, 
the other part of that is really understanding what we call the apex progression because mm-hmm. it's very easy to because you can apply those principles to any part of the journey but if you get the part of the journey in the wrong spot the whole thing can break your whole di- ambition to achieve more freedom choice abundance whatever that is in your life can just absolutely just be disappear so the, what we talk to people about is following foundation which is typically you know 200 200,000 to 500,000 dollar pot properties which are cash flow positive easy to rent uh, maybe a little cosmetic renovation, but it's sort of like it's you know really just building that growth base. So you've got yeah. an equity position. Second to second to that is the acceleration phase, which is maybe stuff like um, subdivisions, maybe battle acts like yeah. a retain and build, or maybe a granny flat strategy, something along those lines. But it's where you're sort of taking that next level of financial and emotional complexity. It's, you need a certain level. It's not just money. It's it's emotional fortitude and and experience. Mm-hmm. Then the third phase is what we call the legacy phase. Mm-hmm. which is I think where this fits and this is where I've always said it fits you know this is with unit blocks commercials um, boarding houses room, or rooming houses however we want to phrase that it's they're, they're sitting in a different category and and you've really got to make sure you've worked up to that otherwise otherwise if you haven't done your stretches on the way up you're probably going to pull a muscle when you get there right mm-hmm. so tell me how that journey went for you like how did you how did you get to that point like how did you I, we don't need to go through every property you ever bought every property you ever built but like what was the what was the process or the thinking process? Like, how did you move from like, all right, I'm just going to go maybe build some houses to like, actually, I'm going to build rooming houses and that's going to be my thing. Yeah, listen, uh, I started much like you said, buying a little 200 grand unit in a little country town in, uh, you know, in, in Victoria uh, that was sort of neutral to kind of positively gear. Um, it's actually a shame I don't have that property anymore, but uh, um um, um, but sometimes you need to kind of make decisions. But that's kind of where I started. And then very, very quickly, I moved to what you're calling, calling your kind of middle phase or middle stage and started doing uh, property developments, which, um, yeah. which is probably about 40% of what I do today. It's, it's kind of around that factor. Anything from sort of, you know, battle access or, or kind of dual occupancies all the way up to, uh, to kind of some, some bigger projects. Um, but one of the big challenges that I found in that stage is that it was very, very hard to get things um, to uh, to end up kind of positive cash flow. You know, right? there were sort of active strategies that needed me to go and do a year or two of work uh, to produce significant income and from significant uh, kind of profit, but I needed to do that work. And I started to think about the fact that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, I might not necessarily want to do that amount of work uh, permanently. So uh, I needed something that was, you know, more more cash flow oriented and less growth oriented to kind of balance the approach. So today I do kind of both. So I basically do uh, continue to do property development. I'm probably going to continue to do that uh, for, for quite a long time. But I already started investing into you know, into pure cash flow properties with the view that, you know, 20 or 30 years from now, I, yeah, I you know, the, 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 the cash flow coming from there is going to, you know, it's going to be much bigger than anything else I could do in, uh, in property. So, okay. Makes sense. It makes sense. Let's, we don't need to get stuck on like the development side of things because I think there's a lot of value I think a lot of people understand the idea of like, okay, if you buy a battle axe, Absolutely. subdivide it, build something on the back. Now, mm-hmm. if you if you build it to sell, you need to make sure you have a developer's margin built into your feasibility. If you build it to hold, 
mm-hmm. it can be a very good cash flow asset. It can actually yeah. be a good asset that gives you both equity and cash flow. And it's that stage where you can really start to accelerate your journey, which is why we call it the acceleration phase. Yes. But we're here to talk about rooming houses. So tell how does this how did how does this really diff, differ and like where does this fit in and what's the main what is the main benefit? Why are you so passionate about this? Well, listen, like I said, uh, you know, rooming houses has uh, you know the perfect combination of of elements when when you think about an ideal um, you know investment in property. It's almost like a, a, a you know took out a pad of paper and wrote like, well, if I could imagine the ideal investment, um, what will it look like? And it turns out rooming houses, you know, have most of those elements, yeah? So, so you know, the, the kind of rooming houses we build, they tend to have, um, you know, sort of usually up to nine bedrooms. So that means you have up to nine different tenants, up to nine different income streams on each of these individual properties. So that means when a tenant leaves, I hardly lose any sleep, right? It's like, I, I almost don't care. So, you know, well, okay, my income went down maybe 10%. Um, you know, the rest of the people are, are there. And because of the nature of these properties, they tend to be vacant for, you know, a week, sometimes sometimes less. So that's one of the factors. Um, the other big factor of it is it's, um, it, they're really accessible in terms of, um, you know, financing and, and cash flow in the sense that, you know, you're talking about nine rents, each of these rents, you know, on a typical property might be, you know, $200, $250 a week. So you're talking about properties that provide, you know, 100 grand in rent a year, uh, give or take. Um, and, and that's very rare on any property, uh, let alone on, on a property um, in this country. Well, um, t- totally. I mean, you you would associate that kind of that kind of revenue with a commercial property. So that makes me ask the. I'm going to ask a couple of questions about that. The finances sure. of it. Is it is it is it classed as a commercial property? Uh, it's uh, you know the banks don't like committing sometimes to terminology. So what they call <laughs> it is they call it commercial residential, which is kind of weird because That's, that is weird. Like <laughs> like where like where does it fall in it? Like okay, let me rephrase this. Commercial, you need at least. Uh, the maximum is like 60 to 70% LVR, right? And so that's actually one of the barriers to entry with commercial, aside from risk and whole, yep. this is another conversation. Does it fall into that or is it residential? It's like difference between getting a four-pack unit block and a five-pack pack unit block. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great question. Listen, uh, financing is one of those things where um, it's probably one of the most tricky things about this strategy. So that's why it's important to kind of be around people who have done it before and kind of know what they're doing. The reality is depending on how the property it's, uh, it's designed, and that's one of the reasons why we design our own properties and build them from scratch rather than building something that is kind of existing stock or that is a conversion. Uh, depending on how it is, both options are actually available. So um, in some instances, you might want to try to go down the residential path. Uh, that's going to allow you to, do, you know, like you said, higher LBRs, lower interest rates, uh, but it's going to limit somewhat um, the way the property needs to be built, executed, some of the costs associated with it, and have a slight impact on the rent. But for some people, that path is perfect. Does that is that is that to get not to get down to mechanics, but is that sort of the is that like the difference between certification? Like if it's certified as like a class one 
B or something like that? Is it commercial? And if it's classified, certified, like what? Like is it just? Is it down yeah. to that technicality and whether it's got exit signs or whether it? Is uh, it- yeah, no. Listen, every rooming house needs to be a class one B building. Uh, if you're got doing it. a rooming house and it's not a class one B building, you're breaking the law, and that goes into that dark place that I was talking about before. So everything needs to be dark, you know, class one B, which uh, again has certain requirements, like you said, around accessibility and wheelchair access and and fire protection and some of those things, uh, which again, specialist builders uh, like like, like us who build that sort of stuff will be all over, is actually not a problem. Uh, It's more around the design. So let me maybe put a a couple of examples. So um, very lately, uh, I guess one of my favorite ways of building some of these rooming houses is what we're calling uh, self-contained micro apartments. Um, so that means, you know, inside one legally, what's legally one property, uh, each of these rooms become um, become little studios, little micro apartments, where they basically means that the shared facilities in the house are hardly ever used. So that means every room has its own bathroom, its own kitchenette, its own its own seating area, and then obviously the, the kind of sleeping quarters. So you're effectively in a kind of an apartment. The problem with those is you have nine of those. When you, when we present it to a bank, the bank doesn't think that's a house. It cannot it's be a rented unit block. as a it's house. A unit block. Yeah, it, does, it cannot be rented as a house. It cannot be sold as a house. If you get in trouble and foreclose on your on your loan, the bank cannot sell it to a family to live in. Therefore, that type of property needs to be financed from 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 the commercial side of things. So you end up in a commercial loan. Mm-hmm. Um, now. That's not the only way of doing rooming houses. So we've done plenty of rooming houses that are nine bedrooms, three bathrooms. And that's just a, you know, a big house with lots of rooms. Yeah? And some of these Got rooms it. might not be bedrooms if they, uh, if they don't want to. Yeah? You, if, you, if you're in a property or ever seen a property that has like an entertainment area or a rumpus room and a home theater area, a lot of these rooms can actually be, be used uh, sort of that way, um, which means that Again, if the bank were to have to take possession of this property, they can just sell it to a normal family to live in, uh, and that kind of makes it, you know, makes it uh, yeah. qualifies it for kind of residential lending. Now, doing residential lending means you need to have the serviceability and all that sort of stuff, and the rent that is going to be used for the assessment is a standard rent, not necessarily a rooming house rent. So all these things need to bear in mind. But those both paths. Are, are open and what we find is if people maybe don't have a lot of equity to get started you know sometimes going down the residential path um, is, is, is preferable now if someone has a little bit more equity or their serviceability is not strong then uh, the commercial side of, of, uh, of, um, oh, nice. of, of these rooming houses it's actually better because you're on a commercial lending. Yeah, so they'll um, lend against the cash flow. They'll lend against the cash flow. And again, you're, you're making awesome. money out of these properties. These properties, some of these properties make 30, 40 grand uh, free net in your pocket every year. So, um, yeah, that's, that, that's, that, that can count towards uh, financing the project almost on its own. Crikey. So, yeah. So one of the, it's actually one of the issues that I've seen with people who are trying to do boarding house conversions mm-hmm. is that they can, they take an existing residential house and then they convert it and they go, yeah, look, I've just, I've put $75,000 or whatever into converting it, mm-hmm. but now it's accidentally become a commercial asset and That's right. 
oh, I now have trouble financing it. Now it's become a different product. And now the bank doesn't like it. And then all of a sudden they find themselves really stuck. No, I was going to say, and that, that's one of the reasons why we don't do conversions. We don't like conversions. We think conversions breed you to what, what we call no man's land. So yeah. you don't have proper rooming house because it's not proper design. It's really a house with a few extra walls, but you don't have a house either. So you can't sell it as a house. You, you can't maximize the opportunity of having a rooming house. Uh, so you end up kind of stuck uh, somewhere in between, which is one, one of the reasons why we, why all our projects are purpose built, purpose designed. Um, so that way, you know, you maximize the opportunity but it is a rooming house. There's no, there's no, no way around it at the end. So if you need to sell it, not that I've seen too many rooming house sell for sales. People who built these assets um, don't don't tend to let go of them. I mean, I wouldn't let go of something that puts thirty grand on my pocket uh, every year. Um, you but, mentioned, but, you but mentioned, if you have to, the asset is there. Yeah. So you mentioned cash flow a couple of times. Like, what is the kind of what are the kind of gross and net yields that you can expect out of this kind of thing? Yeah, so again, the typical rooming house we build is 200 to $200, $250 uh, a week per rent per room. Uh, uh, so that's somewhere between 108 and 120 grand a year uh, kind of gross. Um, now, one of the things that happens with rooming houses, the expenses are, are higher. Uh, uh, and I know we're going to have kind of other opportunities to go into the detail of, of kind of a lot of that um, in, uh, in later trainings. But, um, you know, the, the expenses are higher, but net in your pocket after mortgage, after expenses, after management fees, um, most of these projects um, kind of deliver somewhere between 30 and 40 grand net. So, um, again, very different to, you know, a typical property, even the best. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you sort of get the stability of residential, but the cash flow of commercial. Mm, that's right. Wow. That's cool. Hey, that's that's awesome. You're like, that's I know one of the reasons why I love this strategy so much, man. <laughs> well, then, what, okay, then the obvious question is, why isn't everyone just doing it? Why isn't it? Why aren't we doing it everywhere? Like, surely there's a limited market for it. Surely, surely it's more than just like, well, there's just not that many stone horizons around. You know, surely there's like, why is it, why aren't these more common? Is there a very limited market? What's the kind of marketing strategy? Like, why isn't there more? Why is yeah, it listen, fair, fair, fair question. And sometimes I wonder myself, uh, part of the reason why we went into the market with Stone Horizon is well, like, well, we couldn't actually find anyone doing this kind of stuff for people. So we, we you know, we had investors around it who've done them before and we've done them before. Uh, but it's like this secret club that, you know, you don't kind of talk <laughs> about it too much. And, and it's not that there's anything wrong with it. And, and people say, oh, no, if I... You know, if we build 10 of these things, then are we going to overflow the market? And, and I always tell to people some statistics, right? So a lot, up to last year, there were about 1,300 rooming houses in the whole of Victoria. Yeah? Um, that's, that's a significant number, but not when you compare it to the number of other properties, which means that demand for these places is huge, yeah? uh, particularly in tough times. In the last couple of months, our waiting list for some of these properties has doubled. Mm. Um, you know, inevitably, you know, these things get filled up very quick. So you will think, well, why people are not doing it? And I think it's a couple, it's, I think it's a couple of reasons. The first one is, you know, I find most Australians have an emotional connection to property in this country, right? Yeah. They want to own lots of houses that are nice houses that look like their house. 
So a lot of people think about, well, I wouldn't live there or I wouldn't do that. Um, when they don't I think see that all the time. I see that all the time. I see that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. They don't think as investors, right? They think they're buying a house and they think because they bought a house before to live in, that every house they buy needs to look and feel and, and kind of be the same, right? That's why most people buy houses, you know, a couple of kilometers around where they are, even though that might not necessarily be the, you know, the right investment decision. So, so that's one reason. The other reason is there is not that many stone horizons around um, that, that, that do help people do this stuff when they, when they don't know what to do. Uh, and again, because it's a complex strategy, it's not on people's eyes. There's, you know, we spend a lot of time talking to the regulators and understanding what needs to happen and on building sites, you know, making sure that these things are built properly, they can operate, we kind of, you know, not only profitably, but, you know, with all the right regulations uh, and, and, and without kind of any hiccups. So, with that, that, that and, then the, and then the third factor is people think they're risky when, mm-hmm. again, it's a bit like the whole, you know, having a job versus, uh, versus doing some of the things we, we're doing. Um, yeah, I can, def- I can definitely see the overlay between business thinking and property thinking in this strategy because in order to ascertain if the idea is viable in a certain area, you need to, you need to do market research, you need Absolutely. to do a SWOT analysis, you need to understand who you're going to be marketing the product to and is, it a, is there a product market match? Mm-hmm. You know, all of that kind of stuff. You couldn't just... It's kind of like if you're just going to invest in it, like I say, a three-bedroom, uh, three-bedroom, two-bathroom house, yeah. you can just very easily, it's very soft landing because you can just go, well, everyone needs houses, right? That's right. Everyone needs houses, right? So I'll just buy a house and like, that's okay. Whereas just because it's a little more complex, it, is, it actually does require you to go, okay, if I'm going to launch this product into the marketplace, can the marketplace support it? Is there an appetite in this marketplace for this product? Like, like anything, like if you were to launch a, like if you were to launch a, a fitness supplement or something yeah. like that, you'd need to go, okay, who's it for and are they there? And am I going to meet them where they are and how am I going to let them know about it? And all of that kind of stuff. It's quite fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. And listen, it's one of the reasons why we, why we knew that, why we now do that sort of end-to-end thing. So we started just as a builder, right? Like I said, I own a building company and we just, we've been building rooming houses for a long time, initially for us and then eventually for, for kind of other investors. And, 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 you know, we, we assumed that once we said to people that we were building these things, we were going to get you know, lots of inquiries and a lot of people wanting to do this thing. But people just didn't know what to do. So, so that's why we ex- kind of expanded. We went, well, we have a full team dedicated to doing this stuff and to figure out you know, which markets and which pockets within those markets this works. We, we, you know, we now have um, you know, a specialist um, kind of property manager that manages our properties, uh, you know, specialist designers that design kind of this stuff. Uh, and a full division within within our building group that that all they do is uh, is kind of rooming houses uh, with the with the hope that you know we can help more people get get you know more freedom through uh, through investing in some of these strategies. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, it's fascinating because what you said there was that you know you can go, hey, here's the product, but then people are like, what do I do with it? It's almost like going, I'd love right. to have a helicopter, and then if someone gives you a helicopter, you're like. 
how the fuck do I fly this thing? It's That's like, right. It's useless. It's useless. It'll just gather rust. <laughs> well, it's even dangerous, right? If you try to do it on your own, then yeah, you're, you're you more likely than not, you're going to end up hurt. Yeah, yeah, I'll give it a crack and then you end up stacking it. And Yeah, no, no. So that's, that's, quite, that's quite funny. Well, mate, I'm mindful of time. I think we touched on so much good stuff here. Like I really appreciated digging into your sort of personal development process that's actually led to this point. I, I know I really... I see a huge amount of value in uh, this strategy specifically for a certain part of the portfolio. Once you've, once you've built up the requisite strength and you're looking to transition from, okay, all right, I've kind of got like a wealth base now. Like, it's, it's so funny. You talk about property to people and everyone talks about growth, growth, growth. Everyone wants growth. You invest in a high growth area. Growth, growth, growth. It's growth, growth, growth. But then you actually ask people why they want to invest in property and it's like, oh, to replace my income so I don't have to work. And it's like, oh, hang on a second. Do you understand? Do you understand that? Do you understand that just investing for growth is not going to get you to that result? Yeah. And this is where I think a lot of people get tripped up. And it's one thing that I, I also don't agree with, like just a pure cash flow strategy, like just going invest in tiny towns with nine percent yields. I just don't think that that's a good strategy. Hmm. But when you can combine these aspects of okay, well, how can we invest in a good area but also get cash flow, or how can yeah. we manufacture? growth so that we can get cash flow because without growth, we can't keep moving all of this stuff. So yeah. I, I really love this strategy. And look, we spoke a little bit before we got started on this podcast. And um, you know, as most of the listeners will know by now, we have a private membership site. And if you're interested in that, just head to theinvestorlab.com.au forward slash join the community. Henry has graciously offered to uh, and we're going to do this in the next couple of months. We've got a bit of a backlog of uh, trainings, but in the next couple of months, we're going to be doing a training specifically for our for our members on the mechanics of how this works and how to insert it as part of your overarching portfolio strategy and how you can use this as one of the key levers to get into that freedom point. And um, so thanks for that, Henry. I really, really appreciate it. Have you got anything you wanted to share with anyone uh, before we wrap up? No, not really. I mean, I, I'm really just excited to you know make this strategy uh, available to more people, uh, and you know really look forward to kind of going into more of the detail of you know how it works and how everything hangs together, so people can understand it. Uh, they can evaluate whether it's for them or not, uh, uh, and it's for them. They then can use it to, uh, like I said, get some of that freedom. I know what it is to uh, be be chasing uh, you know be chasing freedom. So I'm glad that you're helping me uh, get the opportunity to go and chase this with more people. That's, uh, that's awesome. I'm incredibly thankful. Mate, I, w- I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't aligned with what we do. Like we're not here to just help people buy houses. I've got no interest in that. What I want to do is I want to help people achieve freedom, freedom, choice, abundance, and this can help people do that. So thank you. Cool. Thanks for your time. Speak soon. No problem.